Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. invite you to turn your copies of the scripture this morning to the book of Exodus chapter 23, Exodus 23, in a moment I'll read beginning in verse 20, how great is our God, his greatness cannot be measured. It's unsearchable. If you were to spend a whole lifetime trying to plumb the depths of God's greatness, you could never get to the bottom of it. You could never get to the top of it. You could never tell of its breath how immense is God's greatness. Do you know God's greatness in your own life? Have you seen it? Have you experienced it? And how great is his word? How great is the word that we come to time and time and time again and we see its greatness over and over again? God's, great, God's word and the greatness of his word always does exactly what he intends it to do. Puritans talk about God's work, God's word working either for gospel softening of hearts or gospel hardening of hearts. That is, when you hear the gospel proclaimed, is there a soft heart that's ready to receive the gospel? Is there a heart that's even made soft by the gospel? Or is there a hard heart that even though it hears the gospel, still rejects the gospel? People could hear the gospel many times. People could say, speak the gospel, yet they've never been softened by it. It's never taken root in their heart and their lives. We are people who are gospel people as Christians. And we want to be gospel softened people every Sunday. Would you stand then as we read God's word together and may his word have its perfect work in us today. Exodus 23 verses 20 through 33. Behold, I send an angel before you 
to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. For Christ's sake, we pray in His name. Amen. May be seated. We live in a faithless age. Perhaps we could say it is an ever-increasing faithless age. Our country and the Western world are seeing a growth of population in a particular group of people. And these, this particular group has been given a label. They are called the Nuns. That's N O N E S, not N U N S. They're called the nuns. Who are these people? They are those who would say that when you ask them what their religion is or what it is that they believe, they would say nothing in particular. They have no religious affiliation. 
It's estimated somewhere between 20 and 30% of Americans now fall into this category. And in my age group, the millennials, that's those from born 81 to 96, 35% would say that they are religiously unaffiliated. Would it surprise us to find such faithlessness in our land, among our people? Think about it. 30%, that's one-third. One-third of the people that you would meet in our land would say, no religious affiliation, and that they believe nothing in particular. I wonder, as we think about a faithless age, if we would say, yes, but hasn't that really been the problem all along? Faithlessness is mankind's problem. That's what has plagued us from the Garden of Eden until today. And sure, there maybe have been times when we've been able to hide it. Maybe there's been times we tried to explain it away. Maybe there have been times when we've lied about it. But faithlessness is man's problem. And particularly as we think about it, this lack of faith is a lack of faith in the true and living triune God. For everyone believes something. Everyone has their faith in something. It's not so much faithless, the problem is misplaced faith. We need to put our faith in something, on something. And would it be any surprise if our faith is misplaced or if people would say that they are faithless, that we would also see an ever-increasing unfaithfulness in the people around us. Lack of devotion, lack of commitment, lack of priorities, lack of following through on their responsibilities, more and more promises that are broken, more and more promises that are made without the intention of ever being kept. You see it in our families, don't you? Unfaithful. What about us? Are we faithful people? And do we ever waver in our faithfulness? Do you ever feel like you're failing in your faith? Keep your finger here in Exodus for a moment and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 11 and following. 
says this, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul here in these verses just quickly draws our minds to some foundational Christian truths, glorious truths. If we have died with him, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. The security of my life is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we endure, our life is not a cakewalk. It's not easy. It is littered with persecutions and difficulties and hardships and persecutions. It is a fight and a battle and a struggle. But if we endure, and Jesus Christ promises the one who endures to the end will be saved, if we endure, we will also reign with him. But then a warning, if we deny him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Here, this last verse, verse 13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, is a word for the faltering Christian, for the wavering Christian, for the one who is doubting, for the one who is questioning the one who is lacking assurance, to the Christian whose vision is filled up with all the ways that they have failed their Lord and their God, the Christian who is burdened by the times that he or she has demonstrated their faithlessness. And isn't this what's displayed each time that we sin, for each sin at its root is unbelief? So if we are faithless, he, that is Christ, remains forever and always faithful. In the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is the one who is riding on the white horse and he's given this name, faithful and true. Our faithlessness is not the final word. Christ's faithfulness is the final word and that word will never change because he cannot deny himself. So are you faithful? Do you live faithfully before the Lord, devoted to Him, obeying Him? How, how are we supposed to live faithfully? How are we supposed to live faithfully when sometimes we feel faithless? When sometimes we're struggling and sometimes we're wrestling and sometimes we're a hot mess. Is it even possible? It's possible if your faithfulness is dependent upon the Lord's 
faithfulness. You can live faithfully to God if your life is based and built on the promises of God. This is the climax now of the end of the book of the covenant. As we're coming to the end here of Exodus 23, we're getting to the end of what is called the book of the covenant. These last two paragraphs, here the Lord has been speaking to his people. He's been speaking to the Israelites. He's been telling them how they are to live in relationship with him how they are to live in relationship with one another, how they are to live in relationship to the rest of the world. And Yahweh ends the book of the covenant with some very important promises. They are promises that are meant to give the Israelites hope. They are meant to reassure the Israelites as they continue their journey through the wilderness. They are meant to be the foundation upon which the Israelites live their lives. And when God gives these promises... He doesn't say, here are my promises, now go and live however you want to live your life. What does he say? Here are these very great, very true, very precious promises. And these promises are meant to shape and define your life. They are meant to help you live. They are meant to be the guardrails that watch over you, protect you, strengthen you, help you, and aid you. Do you live by the promises of God? Are the promises of God what shape and define your life? Do you say, I'm not perfect at living faithfully, but I go back time and time again to God's faithfulness. And I know that His faithfulness is what defines my faithfulness, and His faithfulness is what will make me more faithful day by day by day. And so what does God do? God gives us a vision of these great promises so that we gaze upon the beauty of these promises and that these promises serve as a motivating factor in our lives as to why we live the way that we live. Because the Lord's promises are so majestic and exquisite, I have to live my life in light of those, in accordance with those. I want those promises to inform and support the way that I live my life. So what are the promises that the Lord gives to us? And what are our responses and responsibilities that He requires of us based on these promises? Well, four points. But I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm only doing point one today. And I ask for your forgiveness. Have you ever found when you read God's word 
it's like a fruit that when you squeeze it, more and more and more of its sweet juice and nectar flow forth. And so as we squeeze these first few verses today, I pray that more and more sweet nectar would flow out of this great promise and that it would be a nourishment to our souls, that it would be a sweetness to our souls. So, number one. The Lord promises safe passage to the promised land. The Lord promises safe passage to the promised land. The Lord promises safe passage to the promised land. Yahweh is on a mission. Yahweh's been on a mission since the Garden of Eden. And he is bound and determined to accomplish that mission. He has set out on it and nothing will get in his way. He will bring success to it. He will see it through to the end. And we would be wrong to think that God's mission starts here on Mount Sinai. In fact, what Yahweh is doing in these verses is first he is drawing our minds back to the very first book of the Bible. And so look at what verse 20 says here in Exodus 23. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, keeping your finger there, go back to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24, verse 7. And in the context, Abraham has had a son, Isaac. And now Isaac needs a wife. And so Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son. Genesis 24, verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me, And swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Here is the promise that Yahweh, the Lord, is giving to Abraham, and Abraham is giving then to his servant who is going to find Isaac a wife. The Lord's going to send out his angel, and his angel is going to go before you, and the angel is going to make you successful in what you are about to do. It shows God has a purpose in his redemptive plan. And how do we read that, Exodus 24, in light of now what we read in Exodus 23? What's happening The same thing, isn't it? The Lord is sending out his angel. Before we get any further, angel could also be interpreted messenger, right? So angel and messenger has the same idea behind it here. I believe it is an angel, but angel could also be messenger. And if we think about it this way, the Lord is sending out his messenger. 
before his people. And as we think about Genesis 24 and the angel going out before the servant of Abraham to find this bride for Isaac, isn't now the same mission still going on, but now it's the Lord sending out an angel not to secure a marriage partner for someone else, not to secure a covenant partner for someone else. The Lord is sending out his angel and his messenger to secure his own covenant partner. These are my people. This is, if you will, my bride, and I'm going to send out my angel before my people to guard their way, and I will take care of them, and I will watch over them. I believe this angel is the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord who appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3.2. It's the angel of the Lord who is in the pillar of cloud and fire in Exodus 14.19. And so here again, behold, look, sit up and take notice The Lord is sending His angel before His people to guard them on the way. To bring them to the place that He has prepared for them. The angel of the Lord is this visible manifestation of the presence of God. Who He is and what He does is closely connected to Yahweh. And notice that the promise here of the Lord And the Lord's presence provides assurance for the people on their journey. He will guard them on the way. Where are they going? They're going through the wilderness. The wilderness is unpredictable. It's difficult. It's hard. They're going to go through lands where there are enemies and where there are foes. But God promises, I will guard you through my angel, through my messenger. I will guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. There again, it sounds like a marriage. The groom preparing the place where he is going to bring his bride. The groom preparing the house where he is going to receive his new bride. There I have prepared that place for you and I will bring you to that place. The Lord has gone out. He sought his bride. He's bought his bride. He has borne with his bride. And now they are looking for that final home that the groom has prepared for his bride. And look at what it says here now in verse 21. Pay careful attention or watch yourselves to carefully obey his voice. Pay careful attention to him. Obey him. Listen to what he says. Notice that this obedience is what shows that the Lord is guarding his people. He is actively guarding his people through what the angel of the Lord says. Pay careful attention to him, obey him and his voice. Do not rebel against him. Do not turn on him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. The Lord guards us with his word, and we are responsible to obey his word 
for our own protection. And then look at what it says. Do not rebel against him. It's a command of warning. Why does Yahweh have to say this? Why does Yahweh have to say, don't rebel against the Lord? Don't rebel against the angel of the Lord. Because that's what our hearts are prone to doing. Our hearts are prone to rebelling against him. Their hearts were prone to rebel. Their hearts were prone to be unfaithful. That they would attempt to defy the angel of the Lord. How many of our words or our actions or our choices or our thoughts or the intentions of our hearts have been in rebellion against God? And notice here, if you disobey the word of God, there are consequences. Remember what it said in 2 Timothy? If you deny him, he will deny you. Here, if you rebel against him, he will not pardon your transgression. Who is it that can forgive sins? Who is it that has this kind of authority? Who is it that has the prerogative to say, I will not count your sins or your transgressions against you? Is it not God and God alone? And so what do we know then about this angel of the Lord? Look how closely connected he is to the Lord, for the Lord alone is the one who is able to forgive sins. The Lord alone is the one who will judge, but here it's the angel of the Lord. And so he has all of the authority that Yahweh has. And look at what it says, for my name is in him. That name of the Lord encapsulates all of God who all of who God is, his name, his character, his action, and his work. Other places we see the Lord placing his name on people. He places his name on the priests. He places his name on the Israelites. But the angel of the Lord is different. Yahweh's name is in him. The word here, in him, is in his inward parts. It's who he is. It's his nature. So Yahweh's name is not put on him. It is in him. And he bears all the authority and command that Yahweh does in the life of the Israelites. And then look at what it says. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that what? I say. Whatever he says is what I'm saying. Whatever comes out of his mouth, his voice is my word. You carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. If you disobey the angel of the Lord, you're disobeying God. If you rebel against him, you are rebelling against God. Yet, if you respond to him rightly, what great benefit there is. Yahweh will be an enemy to their enemies and an adversary to their adversaries. And even the sense of adversary is like, I will attack your attackers. Yahweh would fight for them. And then what does it say? He's going to lead them into this place, this promised land. But there's a problem. 
As of yet, in this text, the promised land is filled with enemies. Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Six nations here, or six people groups listed. Remember that this promised land is a land of flowing with milk and honey. A, man, a land that's greatly to be desired. Yet as of yet, there are these pagan nations that reside there. The Lord says, my angel will go before you and bring you to these people and I will blot them out or wipe them out or annihilate them. Why would the Lord do such a thing? How could the Lord do such a thing? Turn back for a moment in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 16. In Genesis 15, the Lord is making a covenant with Abraham. He says this in Genesis 15, 16. He's saying, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. So at this time, Abraham was living in the land. He was sojourning in that land. And God said, your people, your kindred are going to be removed from this land. They're going to go out to a different land. They're going to be there for four generations, and then they're going to come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There are people living in the land, and they were pagan, and they were sinful. And in fact, as we think about what the Lord is doing here, is He's showing His patience. It was a chance for them to repent, a chance for them to acknowledge Him, but they remained in their sin, and they made their sinning complete and full. And then God comes to judge them through removing them from their land. Those who persist in their sin will not persist in that sin without the eventual inevitability of God's judgment finding them. They have not escaped. They will not escape. And so we see even here, even through judgment, the Lord is saving His own people. He's rescuing them. The Lord is bringing them into this place. What is this place that the Lord has prepared for them? Well, we think about it as a land, right? Later we see these boundaries of the land. But I think also, more specifically, the Lord is bringing these people to Himself and to His own sanctuary, to His own holy abode. If you go back in Exodus 15, verse 17, it says, You will bring them and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Where was the angel of the Lord leading the people to? 
He was leading them to the sanctuary of God. He was leading them to meet with God. He was leading them to be visited upon by God, to the place where God would come and dwell with his people. And so the Lord sent out his angel and messenger to lead Abraham's servant, to guide him to Isaac's bride, Rebekah. The Lord has sent out his angel to bring his people to the promised land and to his holy abode. But this isn't the end of the story, is it? The Israelites are eventually exiled from their land because of their sinful ways, because they became like the pagan nations that they were supposed to drive out. They are cast out of the land again because they would not repent and acknowledge their God. They are removed. But then we get to the very end of God's word in the Old Testament, the Bible. I'm sorry. We get to the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi. Just turn there with me, if you would, for a moment. It's not the end of the Bible. I know it's Revelation. I meant the end of the Old Testament. But Malachi, chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn there. What is God doing in his redemptive purposes and in his redemptive plan to get his people to himself, to save his people, to rescue his people, to redeem his people? What is the Lord doing? Malachi means my angel or my messenger. So what do you think the book of Malachi is going to be about the Lord's angel, the Lord's messenger. And what does Malachi promise? Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So what has happened? The people are not in their land. They are exiled. But what's the promise? I'm going to send my angel. I'm going to send my messenger. And he is going to come. He will prepare the way before me. This is exactly what we read this morning In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that there is this messenger who came. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Who is this messenger who has prepared the way? John the Baptist. He came as that one with this voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way the path of the Lord. He's coming. He's coming. Get ready. Get ready. But then look at what it says here in Malachi. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And I think what Malachi is saying here, and what the Lord is saying through the prophet Malachi, is there is a messenger who is going to come, who is going to prepare the way 
But there is another messenger who is going to come. And this messenger, this angel, is the angel or the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And as Malachi writes this, he writes it with a parallelism. Who is this messenger of the covenant? Who is this angel of the covenant? It is no one other than the very Lord himself. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And this same one, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And now, just to further my argument that I think this messenger of the covenant is the Lord himself. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. I say this messenger of the covenant is the Lord because when he comes, his coming will cause dread and terror and fear because he will come with a refiner's fire to purify people. This is the Lord who is coming and this is the Lord who has Who was John the Baptist preparing the way for? Jesus Christ. Who is the one who makes the promise of the new covenant and seals it with his own blood? Jesus Christ. What has Jesus Christ done? He sought her. He bought her with his redeeming blood. This is why Jesus says things like in John 12. He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. That's John 12, 49 and 50. Does that sound familiar? Carefully obey his voice. Why? Because what he says, I say, says the Lord. What does Jesus say? He says, what I say, I am speaking from my Father. He has given me this commandment. And what's the commandment? Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And so Jesus is saying, here is this commandment. Believe in me. Trust in me. Put your faith in me, and you will be saved. And Jesus also says this in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that what? That I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. 
Sounds like Jesus is preparing a place for us where he can come, where he is this final groom who takes his bride, which is the church, to be with him forever and ever in this house. And that is a terrifying thought, maybe, for some of you, because as you think about your own house now, you can think, my house is chaotic. There's a lot of people in my house, and sometimes I don't even like the people in the house that I live with. In my Father's house are many rooms. There is an eternal house, a mansion in glory, where all of God's children live in perfect harmony. The Lord has come. To bring us to himself. To bring us into the very presence of God. To give us himself. And to get us to the promised land. Have you thought about that promised land this week? Have you thought about that heavenly abode? Have you thought about that place where there is perfect peace and rest. Have you desired that promised land? And when that promised land fills up your minds and fills up your thoughts, it makes you live more faithfully now. Does that land have your heart? Is that land your home? And Jesus will come again to bring us home. There's an old song that's been written in the early 1700s called On Jordan's Stormy Banks, I Stand. It goes like this. On Jordan's Stormy Banks, I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. O'er all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed, for I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Father, I pray that we are those who are bound for that land.
and that it would be our heart's desire. And that we would cast a wishful eye even now towards that place. And that as we look towards that shore, as we catch only glimpses and glimmers of it now, that it will make us more faithful. It will make us more sure. It will make us more content. It will make us more diligent. It will strengthen us and comfort us. May all those who are here today be bound for that land. If there is any who is not, I pray that today they would come to believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus, the one who died on the cross to take away sins, the one who rose again from the dead to grant everlasting life. May they repent and turn to him today. And may we look forward together to being in that house and that land where we will know God with us like we've never known before. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.